0: I'm Rebecca Rothstein and along with my co-host Lee Ann Daly, we'd like to welcome you to Say It Forward. Each week we'll be doing one of my favorite things to do, and that's interviewing interesting people with out of the ordinary life stories. They're all people who took a different path in life. Some never imagined the heights they would achieve, and others, well they turned their childhood dreams into reality. So let's begin. Our guest today is entertainment media executive Michael Casson, the founder, chairman, and CEO of MediaLink, a leading global strategic advisory firm. Described as the ultimate power broker, Michael is a trusted advisor to media moguls, Hollywood visionaries, technology pioneers, advertising heads, and Fortune 100 chief marketing officers. His prowess earned him top industry lists, including Adweek's Power 100, Variety's index of the most influential business leaders shaping the global entertainment industry, AdAge's top 100 media executives in America, and the Silicon Beach 25 list of the most powerful digital players in Los Angeles. Michael shares his self-proclaimed superpowers, his ability to solve complex business problems and challenges, to see and seize opportunities across complementary industries. He'll discuss his thoughts on the changing landscape and share how MediaLink is navigating the age of digital disruption across all areas of media and technology. So let's rewind to the beginning and say it forward with media strategist Michael Kasson. We're so happy to have you here. and You have an amazing career. I mean, your whole story um, is just fantastic, and I'd like to begin at the beginning.
1: So I was born in Brooklyn in 1953. My family did what most people did in those days. We loaded up the Conestogas and <laughs> you know, moved across the plains, but I was born in New York, and as I say, when I was three years old, we moved to California, so... My wife of forty-four years likes to tell me that I'm not allowed to say I'm from New York because I'm really not. But I say to her, "Look at my birth certificate, and it will prove <laughs> I am from New, from New York. I actually am." But and
0: you might as well be because you are. You know, you were it, it, raised it, by New Yorkers.
1: Exactly. But but uh, we moved to California in 1953, and I did grow up in the land of orange groves. I still you know, have fun telling people that. In the late 50s here in Southern California, I actually, uh, my dad loved horses and I had a horse. And uh, for those of you who know uh, the freeway system in Los Angeles, the 405 freeway didn't exist. And I used to ride my horse. This is how old I really am. I used to ride my horse from Sepulveda to Balboa. Through the Sepulveda Dam, where now is their 405 freeway. No kidding. So, oh, wow. I, I, I That's really experienced crazy. California through a different lens.
0: It was a bad decision to build a freeway system and not a train system in Los Angeles. I'm just saying. Yeah, but here we go. We're all living here in desert.
1: I
2: love this picture of this young guy yeah. on a horse.
1: Imagine that, a yeah. Jewish cowboy. Jewish it's really. Cowboy.
2: <laughs> and, and what were you, I mean, what were your pursuits? Did you, I mean, because you are a, a guy who connects people, were you as a young person? Connecting the dots, or is that something that kind of unfolded later for you?
1: I think I introduced the anesthesiologist to the pediatrician okay. and the obstetrician when I was born. Okay. It's natural for so me. So you're like a mare.
2: You came out a mayor, kind of connecting uh, ish. people. And, yeah, yeah.
1: Ish. And it's not one of the things that I ever had to work on Mm -hmm. it just was natural Mm -hmm. for me it wasn't Mm -hmm. something that i thought about Mm -hmm. it was just a natural thing that you you interact with people and you connect dots initially not in a thoughtful way it's just what you do
0: you also came from a family your mother was a world-class salesperson your mother sold me my first house Uh, she was an extraordinarily warm vivacious wonderful person i have great memories of her And she was a very can-do, you know, collective kind of person. You have a lot of the same personality traits that your mom has. I don't remember your dad very well, but I remember your mom clearly.
1: So I'll I'll give you two pictures. If you look up the dictionary for the stereotypical Jewish mother, my mother's (laughs) picture will pop up. And I mean that in the greatest degree of respect because my mother was able to use Jewish guilt as a sword and a tool in a way I've never seen Possible, But what she was able to do, all kidding aside, was translate that into the business context. And I think that was a real gift and a real art form. And I watched my mother do it. She was an extremely successful business person, yeah. but she used that oh, she same element. Not guilt, but the ability to make people feel like this is what they should be doing. This is what they need to be doing.
2: Bringing urgency. It sounds like my
1: dad and Mm -hmm. the contribution, the greatest contribution that my dad made to me was my dad did stand up as a kid in the Catskills. So humor has always been very much a part of my of my existence. I feel like Milton Berle mostly, and many people won't even know who that (laughs) is. (laughs) But I have a million jokes in the back of my brain, and until a few years ago, I could actually tell them. In the current environment, I have a book I'm writing. Uh, all kidding aside, that says jokes I can't tell anymore, <laughs> because <laughs> things that used to be funny aren't funny anymore. Unfortunately, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, live and, the, we, live we live in the we live in the a new world, and, too, yeah. and it, it, I, I say this, more, I'm 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 more serious about it than than I might have sounded. But I think um, that era of the ability to tell a joke uh, is is changing because sensitivities uh, are are at a heightened. Uh, Moment and people who would normally have thought something was funny don't think it's funny anymore, and I understand that. So it's a more serious conversation, and it's kind of a a, a, another point, but. That's that's what I've always taken away from my parents. Both were good business people, but again, my dad used humor and my mother used guilt, and if you put the <laughs> two together, you get me.
0: And you were the baby. And I was, yeah. <laughs> you were the baby in the you family. You know, it's like somebody
1: once described GoPro was described as the illegitimate child of Apple <laughs> that and makes Red sense. Bull because their marketing was experiential. And it was their own content that became their marketing. Yeah. And that was kind of what Red Bull did and that's kind of what Apple always did. And I would look at that as a good marriage of Apple and Red Bull right. to give you GoPro in its better days. Right. And I would think that the combination that I had, again, just going back to my parents, those were the two things that really helped shape my my style. What were
2: what were the conversations like around the dinner table with parents like that? And what was the you know, you're the youngest, you have sisters. An like-
1: argument never ended without a joke. You would always find the humor. Where you could.
2: Sure. So and, there's like mending of, of everything in each interaction.
1: Right. Always. With Never love. go to bed mad. Yeah. Kind of mentality. Yeah. And of course, you're not going to agree on everything. Uh, the other thing I would say about our dinnertime conversations was it was very democratic. In 99% of the issues, it would be a real conversation. And as kids, we were allowed to have an opinion. There were times when my parents would say, that's great. That's your opinion. We do live in a democracy, but... You're going to do it my way. right? So uh, I was brought up with the ability, um, with one very, very clear caveat, just be respectful.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. So Mm -hmm. you live in this lovely, warm, intimate, fabulous relationship in your household. Did you grow up in the valley?
1: Yes. I, I was a valley boy.
0: You were a valley boy.
1: And went through, again, looking at California through the lens of really being kind of a, not a hick town, but... I also had the ability in those days to spend a lot of time in New York with my grandparents and my aunts and uncles. And the funny part for me was I'd spend my summers in New York because my grandparents had a home up in the Catskill Mountains. I would come back in September after being in New York for the summers, and I was different than everybody.
0: You know, I, I just- dressed
1: differently than everybody. My experience yeah. was different. And I'd come back to California, to come back to school because we'd be in the in the Catskills for the summer. My friends would say, gee, you dress differently and you're, you you kind of grow up faster with a New York yeah. sensibility. And I had the benefit of living in California but maintaining that New York sensibility. And that was a big – differentiator for me as a kid.
0: You just cleared up a mystery for me that I never knew was a mystery until you just said this. I never understood why my uncle got married in the Catskills. <laughs> oh, <laughs> now I know why. Exactly. You know, I got married at the Concord Hotel. Right. You, you probably had summer jobs at the Concord uh, Hotel. Uh, uh, that is true. When I saw Mrs. Maisel, the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, it's and the they spent the summer in the Catskills, Ronnie was walking down memory lane and that. It was hysterical. Yeah.
1: Well, it's it's you look at that and you look at Dirty Dancing. Oh, you think of
0: be still my heart.
1: You think of those two movies, how they depict, or that television show in the movie that depict that era of the Borscht Belt. Yeah,
0: of- it doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, no. I just did a bike ride in that part of the country oh, this past summer. It just doesn't exist anymore. Although you, I also want to tell you that you were my first crush. Patrick Swayze was my second. <laughs> and watching him in that movie, too bad he died. He was a fabulous.
2: Well, nobody
1: actor. puts baby in the corner. So oh, let's sorry. just be clear. So
2: sorry. I'm gonna go back to you coming back from New York. You're in Southern California, you're a little bit different. Do you see things differently? Do you notice opportunities faster? Like what, yes. what is what is the I think
1: I think in, those, in that era, I think New Yorkers tended to have to act faster. They weren't as laid back as California. You know, the old Woody Allen joke about, You know, the cultural relevance of Southern California is you can make a right turn on a red light. Today, I think the left coast and the right coast, and as well the flyover territory, as we say in affectionately, are more similar Mm -hmm. than they used to be. And I think that's part of communication and information and just media and things being, you know, you see more and you you, – so the coasts are more similar. But back then, there was a decided advantage to have that New York sensibility, that Mm -hmm. New York state of mind. Mm -hmm. How did
2: that serve you as a young person?
1: I think it just made me think faster
2: mm-hmm.
1: on my feet. Mm-hmm. I think that was what it did for me. And it,
2: Where did you end up going to school? And
1: uh, I went to school here in Southern California, and then I went back to graduate school post-law school to NYU for my master's in tax. So I went to college and law school in Southern California and New York for a master's.
2: Right. And what was the thought around tax? What was that at the moment in time? Why did it make sense for you to pursue and Your parents mm-hmm. wanted him to be Jewish. They wanted him to get a job. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe,
1: maybe well, not. No, you know, <laughs> what I always say as a lawyer is a Jewish boy who couldn't do math, otherwise, you'd be a doctor. But when I came out of law school in the early 70s, there was a lot of lawyers, and I wanted something that was, was a differentiator. I didn't want to just be that guy who's now, okay, I'm a lawyer Mm -hmm. and am I going to do corporate or am I going to do Mm -hmm. personal injury or am I going to do Mm – tax was an area that was interesting to me because I actually felt that if you did your job as a tax lawyer, it took me out of the feeling of the nickel and dime aspect of hourly rate and hourly billing because I felt like if I was going to be able to deliver a a real value to my client in the context of saving taxes and being creative as to how you did that – I could feel better about. Gee, I'm charging you by the hour.
2: Yeah. So the strategy it, of tax is part of a business uh, modality. Yeah.
1: And if I'm if I'm really honest, you know, wealthier people are the people who generally have tax problems, and that means they can afford to pay more. So right. there was a pragmatic side to it as well. Following money a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah. Not not always, but in in that context, uh-huh, yeah.
2: Uh-huh. And did you practice that for much time? I
1: practiced for ten years. Okay as a tax lawyer with a focus in the entertainment industry because in Southern California, you know, people talk about the beltway and they always think of Washington. I think each metropolitan city has a beltway of some, sense. So Detroit, the beltway would have been auto. Southern California, at least in those years, the beltway was entertainment. New York, I think the beltway would be culture and finance. Washington, the beltway was politics. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. within this beltway, generally speaking, you'd focus in the entertainment industry if you were looking for those high net worth individuals or mm-hmm. you know people who would be uh, more aligned with what you were trying did to do. Did you work
0: for a firm or did you work for yourself?
1: I started working for a law firm after I came back from uh, New York. Uh, when i where I did the masters. And I did that for about three years and then a group of guys and I set up our own law firm.
0: Quickly decided you can't make enough money if you're working for somebody else. So. Well, my,
1: my interesting story was the firm I was working for was the senior partner of which was like my idol. He was a, about seven or eight years older than me, you know, very good looking guy, man about town. And, you know, he was kind of like, gee, I want to be him in, in you know my next life as, as I progress. And I ended up coming to work for him, which was like a dream. And when I got there a couple of months in, I was already starting to be a pretty good generator of new business. And I came to him and I was in my 20s and I came to him and I said, I'd like to become a partner. And he said, well, you're too young. And I said, well, I don't understand what that has to do with it. I, I mean, the numbers you know, speak for themselves. Mm-hmm. I'm generating enough revenue. I'm generating more revenue than some of the other partners and I would like to become a partner. So we're all we're fully aligned. And he said, Well, you're too young. And I said, Okay, uh, I appreciate that, but then I'm going to go start my own law firm. <laughs> and I did. And I went out with a couple of guys and we formed our own law firm just because I was impatient.
0: Right.
1: I, yeah. You know, um, there's a famous quote about Southern California, which I didn't know then, but I think applied to me, which was In Los Angeles, instant gratification isn't quick enough. <laughs> and, yep. and as a result of that, yeah. I was. I was anxious to move to that next level because I felt like I should be a, a partner because I was, you know, contributing at the level that a partner did. Right. And it wasn't about ego. It was just about, I, I you know, I want to have more of a part of the overall.
0: I did exactly the same thing when I decided to be a financial advisor. I had no high school degree, no college, nothing. And I said, well, I'm not working for anybody else. So that just doesn't work for me. Knowing if I looked back now and said, I oh, was really – I could have probably had an easier time getting to where I got – but we have the same you know, entrepreneurial bias and look what happened, right? It worked.
1: Yeah, it, it, it's interesting. It was
0: harder though. I'm sure for you it was harder at the beginning.
1: Even when I was an employee, my mindset was that of an employer. I always felt like – I never looked at it when I was an employee not that many times in my career, thankfully. I don't say thankfully, just realistically. I've generally been the boss, okay? But – I always looked at it as if it wasn't like, well, that's the company's money or that's the company. I looked at it like it was mine. And I made decisions in the context of being an employee as if I were the employer.
0: Mike Mug that I drink my coffee out of every morning says it's good to be the queen.
2: So going back to your in law in this law practice that you created with partners and and 10 years in you make a shift. What happened?
1: I was representing a company in the home entertainment business, home video business in the mid-80s. And it was the largest independent home video company in the world at the time because that's when the VHS and Betamax and all of that was happening.
2: Mid-80s, right? Mm Mid-80s.
1: And the company um, got a bit over their skates and they were in some financial straits because the business was changing. I don't want to drive too deep into the uh, weeds here, but the video business had started as guaranteed sale. If you sold the home video into the Music Plus or the Video Plus or the Blockbuster, it was a sale. There was no returns, like the record business. Mm -hmm. The video business started to become like the record industry so that they could buy it, but they could also send it back to you if it didn't sell. Mm -hmm. And the prices started going up the studios had not yet gotten into the business. Disney had not yet understood the value of Pinocchio and Sleeping Beauty and the library, the, of, the library yeah. and all of that. So this was the home video business in its early stages. And this particular company had the rights to GI Joe and Transformers and Strawberry Shortcake and Care Bears and Inspector Gadget, and they had the number one children's licenses in the world Mm -hmm. at the time, and there was no Disney home video. So you were really in a land of your own. And that company, again, got a little over their skates, and they brought me in to help reorganize the company and they ended up asking me to come in and take over the company, mm-hmm. which I did. Mm-hmm. And so I made a transition out of the law practice in the mid '80s mm-hmm. to run what was then International International Video Entertainment, which was at the time, as I say, the largest uh, video uh, distributor. Right,
2: and in a the, growth
0: a growth business, if, if in, managed in, in a growth yeah. business. And you also moved into an area where you were no longer billing by the hour.
1: Definitely not billing by the hour. <laughs> yeah. You
0: know.
1: In fact, it's funny you say that, but. I'll, I'll f- fast forward when I ended up in the media business, which we'll get to, I guess, in this conversation, yes, someone said, Michael, what's the difference between being a media buyer and being a lawyer? I said, well, I used to sell it by the hour. Now I buy it by the second. So, yeah. So that was, that was the transition out of the law practice. And if, if, if I really look back, I always envisaged that I would be out of the law practice at some time. I looked at the law practice in some way as a means to an end mm-hmm. That being said, I didn't know what the end would be. I didn't know what the ticket out would be. Mm-hmm. But I kind of always had a hankering to be the client, not the lawyer.
2: Mm-hmm. Does that basis, though, in law and, and to some degree, strategy through the sort of lens of tax strategy, make you on balance more prone to the habit of deal making? What's the thread?
1: if one pays attention to what sh- one should pay attention to in law school i think what you're trained to do in law school is analyze situations and spot the issues and so that tech, that that capability is critical in life as i say always to 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 people what's the call of the question what are we being asked mm-hmm. the answer could vary but the thing you have to solve first is what is what's the question so identify the issues so the an- analysis that you learn if you learn correctly in law school, is to do that. Mm -hmm. Focus on the issues. Make sure you understand, as I say, the call of the question. Mm -hmm. You read a fact pattern, but at the bottom it says, what's the answer? That's what you need to make sure. So when we do a project today at MediaLink, I always ask my team when they're presenting to me before we present to the client, first question, have we answered the question that the client asked?
2: Right. Do you reframe the question a lot?
1: So I had somebody ask me a question the other day they said to me michael uh, of the three things what's most important to you money power or autonomy and i said well i'm going to edit your question they said well it's my question you can't edit it i said yes i can yes i will <laughs> okay if you're asking me to answer it i'm going to i'm going to i'm going to reframe the question i said and the reason is you'll know in a moment i said money's not important to me because i have it and i don't mean that to sound any way Like bad, I'm just saying it's less of a motivator because we've been fortunate. Autonomy is something I think I've kind of had for a long time in terms of decision making and running a business and building businesses. So those two things I would say are not number one. And my edit to the question, in my case, was relevance versus power. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: I said I've never been motivated by power, but I'm highly motivated by relevance, Mm -hmm. particularly Mm -hmm. as I get older, yeah. And and so to me, again, a long way to get to that answer and kind of off-center, but it was just to your point, how yeah. do those things apply?
2: I think it's really important uh, it, 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 of an insight about you and about how you've broken things down throughout your career because from a very early stage, you the autonomy part was built in. I mean it was really built in, especially if you were thinking like an employer in your very first job in a Absolutely. law firm. Absolutely. which is really I mean it's encouraging to young people to hear that because people with that tendency need to hear that that's okay even if they have to su- suffer the slings and arrows of behaving that way right if that's your the word that we use in a school I went to is intel it's like the acorn to the oak right if that's who you are
1: and, the, and you and, have to use it and to your point Leanne about the slings and the arrows I, I have a lot of old homilies that I, I rely on you know one of my favorites is the the uh, pioneers get the arrows and the settlers get the land i've yeah. generally been a pioneer
2: uh-huh.
1: i've been fortunate that i've gotten the land as well but mm-hmm. i've generally done it by being a pioneer
2: right but you've been hit a, you've been hit a few times more
1: than once yeah believe me yeah a day
2: yeah so let's go back to um, your personal life
0: you got married you've been married for 45 years can we talk a little bit about your journey
1: i met my wife 45 years ago And the way we met was I had borrowed a coat from a friend of mine because I was going to New York for my college roommate's wedding and it was the winter and I didn't have a proper winter coat. And, you know, I had ski parkas because I skied, but I didn't have a proper overcoat. And here I'm going to New York in January and it's a, you know, cold time of year. So I wanted, right. right, So I borrowed a coat from a friend of mine. He lived in San Diego and he was coming up to LA. I said, hey, Gary, can I borrow your coat? He says, sure. I got back from New York. He called me and he said, "Hey, um, I, I actually need my coat back, and I have a friend named Ronnie Klein who's coming down to San Diego for my birthday. Could I ask you to do me a favor and drop the coat off at her apartment? She lives in Westwood." And you know, I said, "Sure." Uh, so I had her phone number. I called her, and I said, uh, "You know, Gary mentioned that." I, and she said, "Yes, he told me." She said, uh, "I'll be home all day today, except between one and two. I said, "Well, I don't know if I can make it." She said, "Well, that's your problem. I've given you the whole day <laughs> except one hour, and you know, great. I'm I'm doing you the favor, but, You know. So uh, anyway, I, <laughs> I, I was good, working as a law start. clerk. I was working as a as a law clerk at the time because I was still in school, uh, and I stopped at her apartment uh, at about five o'clock on a Friday, and I knocked on the door. She opened, let me in the building. I knocked on the door. She opened the door. She took the coat and closed the door in my face. But um,
2: That's amazing.
0: (laughs) But
1: my wife happens to have extraordinarily beautiful blue eyes. And I saw them when she opened the door. (laughs) The challenge was I kind of had a girlfriend at the time. It was whoa. It was that kind of a moment. So I called her and I asked her out on a Tuesday. And she said, oh, I may be going to Palm Springs for the weekend. And I said, okay, well, you know, let me know. She instantly called our mutual friend and said, your friend Michael Casson called me and asked me out. Didn't you tell me he was going to marry so-and-so? Because she, they had talked about me, I guess. And he said, yes, he probably will. But go out with him. He'll take you to a nice restaurant. My wife never called me back. That Friday, like a scene from Gwyneth Paltrow's Sliding Doors movie.
0: I love that movie. My friend Nigel Sinclair made that movie.
1: I just saw Nigel two weeks ago. You He's did? a very old friend. That Friday afternoon, Ronnie had never called me back. We were crossing Beverly Drive in Wilshire. And we ran into each other.
2: No kidding. Oh. <laughs> so, destiny. That is sliding doors. It's That's amazing. It. I've seen some social postings, and you love that girl like crazy.
1: She's my trophy wife.
2: Yeah, for 44 years. Yeah. It's beautiful. My, my mother and father were married for 57 years, and they both passed away. But my father always said, being married to the love of your life is the greatest revenge just in life, you know, because you have a better life. Exactly. You know, switching out spouses is is n- n- not what you want.
1: No. Not not a good thing.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah your wife is spectacular. And along the way, you That's have children. That's correct. Three lovely children. That's correct. And we your grandfather. Six times. <laughs> wow. And the great fun. thing
1: about being a grandparent is it's the <laughs> rental model. You just get to rent <laughs> these little people in
2: <laughs> These delightful little people yeah, who you can give back. Yeah, my two-year-old granddaughter this
1: morning, my daughter called me and my two-year-old granddaughter said, Michael. I said, Michael, what happened to <laughs> Papa Michael? Said, it was very funny. She just said, Michael. I said, oh, great.
0: Aww. I'm having my first
2: grandchild.
1: It's the best. It's Congratulations. So exciting. It's the single best institution that. you can wait. ever. It's the greatest club you can ever join.
2: Aww. I can't wait. That's so great. I, I want to wait. talk about MediaLink because we have just a little bit more time left. Um, it's it's a, a business that
0: Talking about being a pioneer. Yeah, jumped jumped
2: into, you know, sort of prominence very quickly, it seemed to me, having been uh, myself a chief marketing officer and in the media space for many years, in agency space. So how did MediaLink come to pass? What was the sort of observation that you made that had you sort of take some time off and evaluate and find the opportunity?
1: So when I left Interpublic in the end of 1999, I had an 18-month covenant not to compete uh, based on our contractual settlement. And in that 18 months, it happened to be uh, right around the dot-com bubble. But it was a time at which I said, in an effort to maintain relevance to my kids— I want to learn about all this digital stuff that's going on. I I say digital, which today is kind of an odd word to use because everything's digital. In fact, I'm actually not sitting here. I'm a hologram. I want you to know that. (laughs) You're not a
2: molecular being right now. You are a digital um, being. But,
1: you know, I I just thought it was good to to make sure that I wasn't just going to be a a 50-plus-year-old media guy back then who knew about spots and dots Mm -hmm. and 30-second, you know, commercials – there was this thing happening. And I said, well, I've got 18 months, I might as well avail myself of the time. And again, in an effort to maintain relevance to the kids and the next generation, not thinking of it in a business context at all, I made it my business to learn what this meant, what the dot-com was all about, what that, that, that moment in time was about. How did about. you do that? I surrounded myself with people way cooler and smarter than me, and I really was just on a learning expedition. Um, Cause I had time Mm -hmm. and it it turned out that the unintended benefit was, yes, I maintained relevance to my kids, but I actually kept myself back to that word relevant. I kept myself relevant in a business and how that led to media link was the phone started ringing and people started calling me and saying, Hey, Michael, do you know about this? Or can you help me on that? And, and always the underlying, and can you connect me to Sally or Johnny or Billy or Joey, what I was never shy about was asking for the order because that was always something that I understood from a commercial perspective. And what I would say if I had to use three words to describe myself, I would say I'm a capitalist, I'm an opportunist, and I'm a good merchandiser. So I was lucky that I identified an opportunity. I was pretty good at capitalizing on it. But I think where I got really lucky was I was pretty good at merchandising it. And that was kind of how MediaLink got built.
2: So- The word merchandising in this sense, can you please like do the drop down menu of what that means?
1: Well, I think in the context of building a business and building a brand, it's around trade marketing, it's around getting the message out. So the way I describe MediaLink today is we live at the intersection of marketing, media, advertising, entertainment, and technology. And what I say to people is this is less true today, but it was very true several years ago. If you show up at that intersection, I will say immodestly, but very.
0: There was nobody there.
1: Humble, number number one, there was nobody there, but number two, if you show up at the intersection of marketing, media, advertising, entertainment, and technology today, and you use a term you'd be familiar with from a marketing perspective, if you used aided awareness and you said media link, I'm proud of the fact that today people would say, and many years ago even people would say, "Oh yeah, media link. I know mm-hmm. media link.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Sure." So I guess we did a good job of building a brand through trade marketing and and yeah. and, and other word of mouth.
2: Well, and thought leadership convening too. I think a- that was a really smart strategy on your part. What, you know, what you also pioneered though. I mean
0: what you did and the way that you were able to deliver to your clients the information that they were specifically around, were they getting what they were paying for? Right. Well, was,
1: y- yes, and, and I'd add one thing. I'm not a consultant. You know the old joke about – um, those who can do, those who can't do, teach, and those who can't teach, consult. Okay? Heard
0: th- I haven't heard part three. <laughs> yeah.
1: um, I'm and, in big and, trouble
0: because
2: yeah. I
1: consult. Well, yeah, well, but it depends how you do it and what the orientation <laughs> yeah. is because the old the other joke about a consultant is if you ask a consultant what time it is, they tell you how to build a watch. I don't know how to build a watch, but I know what time it is in every time zone that you need to know. And so our approach and my approach particularly, because I didn't come from a consultative background – I came from an operational background, so I've always viewed the consulting business as something that can be differentiated if you have an operational approach, a pragmatic approach, something that's actionable. Because if you give somebody... A 400-page deck that is in a perfect world scenario, that's great, but we don't live in a perfect world. No, we need a
2: one-page summary of everything so we can just drill into it. We totally, particularly as executives, need that one-page summary. But what does it look like when somebody receives that one-page summary? You guys are doing sort of a, a host of different services, let's call them to create like I, I what i think you guys are most well known for right now is this idea of the digital transformation consultancy sorry to use the word consultancy but no, fundamentally I mean, that's what you guys by the way, do
1: by the way let me say this i don't i don't run away from the word consultant because you have to be something you have to define yeah. yourself in the marketplace as something and mm-hmm. we are not coming in as your operator we are the consultants for the outside advisors mm-hmm. so i don't i don't hide from that word it's just our orientation is operationally focused that's the difference right so so from that perspective of course when we deliver the one page summary we've done the 400 pages yeah but i don't want to give you something that isn't going to actually answer it goes back to what i said about what's the call of the question Mm -hmm. what do you really need
2: i get that but what does it look like when i get my one page i'm you know let's say i'm chief executive officer of uh a really hot clothing company and I've started out bricks and mortar and I'm just barely starting to use social media and I'm barely understanding that I'm actually a publisher in addition to being a clothing manufacturer. What what do you guys do? What does it look like?
1: Well, I mean, our process depends on exactly what it is, but we, we look at things in, in kind of a three-bucket approach mm-hmm. this was at the foundation of media link strategy implementation and execution mm-hmm. the way i would say it is if think of think of a, a chef a chef writes a recipe they then so that's the strategy mm-hmm. they then cook the food that's the implementation mm-hmm. then they have to eat the food which is the execution mm-hmm. so if you I, I try to dumb it down to just say it that way sure. ours is what is the strategy that you need help on? What is it you're trying to do? How do we help you make certain that the strategy that you're putting forth in your go-to-market or whatever it may encompass is resonant in in the case of go-to-market? Will this resonate with the people you need it to resonate with? And why we can do that is we represent all the different factions in the industry. So I know what an agency needs to hear. I know what a brand needs to hear. So I can tell you as a publisher or you as a tech company or you as a agency, Mm -hmm. what the constituents you need to appeal to need to hear. Mm -hmm. We know that from our marketplace experience. The second piece is, okay, now that you've arrived at that strategy, how do you tell it to them? Where do you tell the story? Who do you tell it to? How do you tell it? Mm -hmm. And then the third piece again is, okay, but how do I close the deal? Whatever the deal may be. So if we go to a publisher and say, this is your – digital transformation strategy. Here's how we think you implement it through organizational design, through whatever it may be. Technology, all the different things, mm-hmm. which we are part of that process. Mm-hmm. The third piece is, okay, now how do we go out and sell something based on what we've just done? You're not doing digital transformation for the sake of it. Mm-hmm. You're doing it because it needs to lead you to the promised land. And the promised land is usually the sound of cha-ching at
0: yeah. the other
1: end where you've closed a transaction or done the deal. And how so- if
0: you had to deal with the enormous amount of publicity that's coming at right now about the theft of privacy.
1: So I think mm-hmm. the word T or the letter T is what is primary in everybody's mind today. T stands for trust. T stands for transparency. T stands for technology. So if you think of those things, technology potentially undermining transparency and trust That's not a good thing. You need to kind of tick all the boxes of those words that start with T, and I'd add talent in. Mm -hmm. So talent, technology, transparency, and trust. And if you look at those words across the landscape of all of our businesses, that's critical.
2: Yeah. And it's tricky because there's a a real tension between efficiency, which comes from getting all this data that sometimes gets misused, and responsiveness. Because efficiency comes from, to some degree, gathering the data. Responsiveness comes from actually engaging in a human relationship with your customer. And that's the thing that's missing a lot of times. Well, look,
1: when you talk about human relationship with your customer, my mentor in the business, uh, in the media business, was a gentleman by the name of Dennis Holt, who brought me into. Uh, Western international media. And Dennis had a lot of homilies of his own, but one of them was friends don't fire friends. And what he meant by that is when you have a relationship with a client, make it your business to make them your friend. Because when in baseball, we talk about tie goes to the runner. In business, if you have become friendly with your client, they're going to think twice before they pull the mm-hmm. lever of, hey, I got to cut your thing, or I can't use you anymore. Mm-hmm. So that was something that I always understood. And it was foundational. You build a relationship, that's number one. Yeah. Number two, he always had a great expression around, when you have a friend who has a big job, you speak to them once a week. When that friend doesn't have that job, you speak to them twice a week.
0: Mm-hmm. Before we let you go, I have a few questions I want to ask you. What haven't you done that you want to do?
1: I want to be on Dancing with the Stars. <laughs> it's <laughs> you my get- fantasy. <laughs> My sisters used me as a prop growing up, growing up, and I'm a pretty good dancer. So I definitely <laughs> want it. It's either that or a lounge lizard with a brandy snifter on the piano. Do you
2: play? Do you play? No, but
1: I really, really would love to. Oh, And, baby. and, and, and You're gonna I'm do a it then. real Cole Porter, George Gershwin,
2: mm-hmm.
0: Porter. Rogers and Hart. Since you sit at a very pivotal space. That's
1: my real fantasy. Either lounge lizard with a brandy snifter dropping dollars in. Or Dancing with the Stars, <laughs> one of the two.
0: We could probably figure out a way to get you on Dancing with the Stars, as long as you have two, one
2: foot left and one foot right. Can I ask another question sure. before you wrap it up? I heard you saw Hamilton seven times. I did. What What's up with that?
1: I found Alexander Hamilton to be one of the most interesting characters. Ever? Ever. I read the book when it first came out, and I was impressed, and I loved it. And, and I do like to read historical biographies. When I went to see the show, I had no idea, non-zero. I ran into somebody on a Saturday in New York and I said, hey, what's up? Great. Oh, last night I saw this show, Hamilton. I said, really? I hadn't heard about it. Where, what's the, oh, it's amazing. It's at the public theater. I said, oh, well, if it's great, I'd love to go see it. No idea, hadn't read a, nothing. It was still at the public. I went to see it. My wife and I took another couple to see it and it was life-changing. From the perspective of the character, the impact, and a particular thread of one song in the show, which was about being in the room where it happened.
0: It's amazing. My friend, Fred, do you know Freddie uh, DeMann? Yeah, very So Freddie was an original investor in this, and I remember him telling me, there's a play coming. They were doing it in Lower Broughton. He also did Evan Hansen. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. And And Come From Away. And Come From Away. Which I love. Yeah. He but, told me when Hamilton was in its you know early early days down in the bowels of New York. He said, "Wait till you see this play." This no, no, of, it's 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 I, I think it's one of the most socks extraordinary
1: socks plays. And it, there are two books in my life that I've read more than well, that's not true. There's probably a few more books that I've read more than once. But Hamilton was one of them.
0: Hamilton was one of the books and I read. The second more than once. time
1: I read it in the context of a multimedia experience. The second time I read it, I had my earphones on. With oh wow, phone.
0: it's so, an amazing story. Did you ever read The Fountainhead?
1: Yes, that's yeah. the second. That's book That's the that second I read
0: book twice. I read more
2: than once. I want to go back to a moment ago. Is that a joke? No, that's the truth. Absolutely true. I was about to say that. It's Unbelievable.
1: <laughs> Howard Work is my hero. Wow,
2: Howard Work is my work hero. Hands. He, I swear to God, <laughs> being in the room. Okay, when you said that, the energy that I felt from you was a very deep, kind of energy. I want to hear about that. What's that well, about? Well,
1: from from a MediaLink perspective, and I'll use that as a way to you know, kind of demonstrate it, our unique position in the marketplace is we do get to be in the room where it happens more than anybody else. And that's just great fortune because it gives us visibility horizontally, not just vertically, number one. Number two, um, you kind of understand where people are going. And my grandmother used to say, if you don't know where you're going, you're going to end up somewhere else. And so as a result of that, I look at life and I say, if you understand the kind of moving pieces in a particular, again, going back to the industry that's relevant to me in a business context, the intersection of marketing, media, advertising, entertainment, and technology, if you're in the room where that intersection is happening, it's priceless mm-hmm. to steal from mm-hmm. MasterCard. It's priceless uh, that, what that can enable.
0: Mm-hmm. I want to tell you that the fact that you started this business from nothing – and built it into a behemoth and exited with a fantastic sail and really sit at the precipice and the and all of the intersections of everything that's going on. I'm very proud of you. Well, thank you. Really. It's an awesome accomplishment.
1: There's more to do, uh, but I, I, I certainly will put a period at the end of the sentence and say thank you very much. Um, it's been an interesting journey. Thankfully, I think it's not over yet.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for coming to talk to us. Great. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Next on Say It Forward, we'll meet television writer, producer, and showrunner John Worth. As a young kid, he was a big reader and dreamt of publishing poetry, but his father's hostility drove him from home. At just 16, he lost his mother. Throughout these tough early years, he harbored a passion for poetry and screenwriting. It took him until he turned 30 to really get underway, but his journey is a study in what happens when you refuse to quit your dreams. It may have taken him a while, but he made it to the top of the television business where he has stayed for four decades, writing and producing shows like Nash Bridges, Remington Steel, Picket Fences, Hell on Wheels, and the new Netflix series, The Woo Assassins. So join us as we rewind to the beginning of a Riding to the top of the television charts with John Worth on the next Say It Forward.
2: Thanks for listening to Say It Forward. Help us grow by subscribing to our podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or at www.sayitforwardpodcast.com. Don't forget to rate and review us on the iTunes Store or like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram.